Hi, everyone. It's your podcast producer, Casey Calnan. Just wanted to let you know that as of February 1st, 2024, this podcast has had more than 87,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners and viewers in 95 different countries. And the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org, has drawn nearly 41,000 web visitors from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you to be a guest on our show. Our host, Dr. Kimberly Skorupski, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, fun. It is a great experience. As producer, I'll make the edits. So if you need to have any edits on the back end, I'm happy to do that for you. No pressure to nail the interview on the first shot or if there's a mistake or even a friendly dog barking in the background, we'll take care of that. So please reach out to us if you would like to be a guest or nominate someone in our academic medicine community to be a guest. You can visit the contact us page on facultyfactory.org to send us a message, or you can contact Dr. Skorupski, our host, directly by emailing her at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski sitting here at Hopkins looking at my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Sue Pollard. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kim. Well, thanks for being here again. And I say again, those of you who are listening to the Faculty Factory, because Dr. Sue Pollard was one of the original guests on the Faculty Factory almost five years ago. You can go to facultyfactory.org, check out episode number 21. And then most recently, you heard her with our other colleague and friend, Dr. Harriet Hoff, on episode number 253, where the together They talked about career infrastructure, CV, preparation, letter writing, telling your story. It was a super good episode. So if you're thinking about promotion, you're going to want to check out that episode. But that said, let me tell you, for those of you who don't know, have the good fortune of knowing Dr. Sue Pollard. She is an MD, MS. She's the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs and Faculty Development and the Ruth E. Murdoch Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And I have to promote and amplify Carol for recently being awarded, as she's actually the 2023 Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award recipient. What is a Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award recipient? Well, that award is our most prestigious award given to one person every year from the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs, the AAMC Association of American Medical Colleges, Group on Faculty Affairs established this Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award to commemorate the legacy and of service and example of Dr. Bland. I did not have the, the blessing to know Dr. Bland, but the award serves to honor members of the faculty affairs community who exemplify the spirit of phronesis through dedicated and selfless promotion of faculty vitality. So Dr. Um, Pollard joins really wonderful company in setting an example and a legacy of what this community of faculty affairs stands for. And she is just a giant in our field. And we're really fortunate to have her on today. And she's going to be talking about a topic that I am also personally invested in. And many of you listening, I know if you're not personally invested in it, you will be, or you know someone who is. So with all that yammering, welcome again, Dr. Sue Pollard. And Thanks for being here, and let's get into it. Thank you, Dr. Kim Skrupski. I'm so delighted to be here. 
first want to congratulate you on the great work you've done looking at how we contribute to cont continue to contribute to our colleagues' success throughout our careers. Those of us in faculty affairs and faculty development really go into that work to, to usually at a point in our career where we know enough and are willing to put aside other parts of our world. Um, for example, our content expertise that may have gotten us to the rank of full professor or a fairly senior rank, we put aside that work and take on the work of supporting our colleagues. And we do it in many ways through sometimes the mechanics of their employment and promotion and tenure, sometimes in professional development opportunities. But it's really about how do we help other people advance when we're at a point that where we're fairly senior in our career often. Yeah. Um, and uh, in that work, um, you know, in the work that I've done in that area, what I find is it's just so uh, life-giving, honestly, and so energizing to be meeting with people who may be at all different stages of their career, but often are at transition times, sometimes troubling, sometimes times of great opportunity, but there's a level of peer support, and I consider myself uh, everyone's peer, there's a level of peer support that they just need. And sometimes they need you to look at a paper. Sometimes they need you to look at a contract. Sometimes they need you to make a connection. Sometimes they need you to practice a conversation. And I love that part of it when you talk about a conversation and you say, here's words that might move you closer to your goal than the words you were thinking of using. It's so important how we have those conversations. Um, and those conversations are often negotiations. So how do we plan those conversations in a negotiation so we're completely respectful of ourselves and the other party um, and mindful of the other party's interests and help them see how we contribute to their interests. So it's just a really, really fun way to think of things. I, I couldn't agree more. I love it. And when days when I'm kind of exhausted or stressed out or my mind is spinning and I look at my calendar and say, oh, I have a meeting with Sue Pollard. I, you know, will get excited because it's about that that process of thinking together and brainstorming together. And as you said, listening for values and, and words and kind of helping faculty have an aha moment. It really is rewarding. And when I have those moments in my calendar in my day. And I imagine it's for every faculty person. There's something that kind of makes your heart go, ah. And, and that's exactly why I think what I'm doing, what I'm doing with faculty is because it's the same. It really feels good to help mm -hmm. other people. Exactly. Exactly. And you're, you're catching me at a good time because I'm just back from the AAMC LearnServe lead in Seattle. And I had several situations at that meeting where someone approached me and said, you don't remember me, but... You gave this advice. We had this conversation and I acted on what we discussed. And this is where I am now. And, you know, I usually remember the person, but I have no recollection of what the conversation was about. But I remember the person. I remember being excited for their possibilities. And then to have them come back and say, you know, this is this is the outcome is so gratifying and, and just makes you, you know, makes you realize this is important work and we need to keep doing it. And certainly people have done it for me. And I think that's the other piece. I didn't come to this by myself. Folks did it for me, gave me advice, helped me crystallize thoughts in my mind. Um, I, I'll never forget a conversation I had with Dr. Lou Ann Thorndike. We were talking about my scholarship and we were talking about what I was interested in. And I, I kind of you know, floundered around a little bit. And then she said to me, 
you know what you're interested in? You're really interested in part-time work in academic medicine. I said, yeah, I am, because I was part-time for quite a bit of time. And I th- I'm really passionate about uh, having people think about that as part of their career tra- trajectory, not as a loss, but as a time to recalibrate and have some respite, perhaps, or some way their attention is divided with the idea that you can re-enter and continue to grow in your career. So, Luann, that conversation was one of those light bulb moments that I will always remember. Um, and so it's really, I, I love the thought that perhaps I'm in that role nowadays. Oh, my gosh. I had this, As soon as you said I have one person, I thought, oh, me too, Luann Thorndike. I had the same experience when she came to Rush University Medical Center back around 2010 and she gave us a workshop on leadership and everything she said and how she said it and assuming a leadership identity and acting from that posture and I thought oh one can do that even if I'm not a leader yet Uh so and I I think it tickles me when you say oh you know someone said Sue you told me and someone has told recently said that to me too and I thought I said that really that doesn't sound something like something I would say that sounds a little bit way too smart I think you're giving me to maybe it's somebody else who said that they're like no you said it I'm like oh well go go me who knew <laughs> but it is it's so it, it is really heartwarming so you and I were talking before we hit record on um, mutual interest we both have in a certain stage of the continuum of the the life career span in academic medicine and life in general and that is later career um, faculty experiences. And we've been doing a lot here at Hopkins. You know, we did a lot of GFA and there are a bunch of us around the country who are really um, excited about this. And so tell us how you got into this area of later career transitioning and thinking about the transitions of part-time or leaving full-time employment, what you're doing at University of Virginia. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, for me personally, the part of it is just recognizing where I am on my career. I think many of us, when we get to the point of that, and I'm I'm combating ageism one birthday at a time, I'm not a bit afraid to tell people I'm 67 years old. I turned 67 just four weeks ago. I'm full of energy. I, you know, I take care of myself. My children are grown and gone. So I have time to do the self-care that gives you longevity. And I have parents who are both live, they're in their early 90s. They live independently. I am going to live a long time. And so I think about my work life really does. I don't see an end or, you know, soon because I, I'm, I have the energy to do it. I have contributions to be made. And so the question is then, how do you contribute at that phase in your life? And certainly I can, you know, I have a job at my institution. Um, I have a wonderful dean who is a mentor, um, Melina Kibbe, who's given me many opportunities and is um, appreciative of the wisdom that I bring to the position after having been at UVA for so many years. And so I feel like my background uh, is appreciated and well utilized here. Um, But what else can I do? Because I think we all, it's the, what's the generativity beyond the work that I do here? What's the work that I want to do beyond the walls of my institution? And I'm fortunate enough to be involved with the AAMC programs for early career women, for their healthcare executive diversity program, and for ELAM. So I work with lots of folks, particularly folks who are underrepresented in leadership in medicine. So I get a chance to talk to folks who are finding their way in a world that they don't see a lot of leaders like them and helping them think about the conversations, the ideas, the growth um, that that move them forward as leaders, because they all are leaders. But how do they negotiate a world that 
didn't necessarily have role models that were like them demographically, personal life, um, career life. Um, and so that's the work that I really enjoy being able to do and do at UVA, but also outside of UVA. At our own institution, we have an opportunity for people to do a phased retirement so they can take a two-year period of declining effort um, and retain a number of benefits that are important to them. And it's liberally used. And I think it's a great idea because it lets people step down and, and put a toe in that water of retirement. And I haven't seen a single person who retired who regretted it, um, but I've seen lots of people going through that that phased a couple of year piece who begin to have a sense of who they are when they aren't, um, you know, faculty in our school of medicine anymore. Um, and it's it's really rarely a matter of their identity is so caught up that they don't know what else to do. They just don't, you can't imagine a life that isn't full of the busyness of the work that we do. So I love that people really have that opportunity to explore a little bit. Oh, that's great, Sue. You're thinking, you're reminding me of what happened a couple of weeks ago. We at Hopkins do a retirement panel presentation at least once a year where we invite recent retirees to come, four or five of them, and share their experiences. And then we, what follows that is what we call the next chapter. It's a three-part series every Wednesday for three weeks. We talk about identity, purpose, community, making making the, the change. And what you just said reminded me of what our former Senior Associate Dean for Women, Dr. Barbara Fibush, who recently retired, she was on the panel. And someone was asking about the, you know, the, the identity question of if you're not, is your work who you are or is your work what you do? And when you introduce yourself at parties or when you meet people, how do you do that? If you, you know, do you, you can't say I'm a surgeon or I'm a principal investigator or I'm a professor, how do you introduce yourself? And Barbara Fibush said something really, I think, refreshing. There are about 50 people on the call and you could see people kind of get yay. She said, you know what? I've been retired maybe two years now. And she said, when I go out in the world, I've never had one person ask me, what did you used to do? They want to know what I'm doing now. Wow. And she said, it's not that they're necessarily nosy, but people want ideas. They want to know, like, like what you and I do when we meet people, we ask questions to see where there's connection. What yeah. do I have in common with Sue? Oh, you did this or you did that. Oh, me too, me too, me too. So the same thing in later career and later life. People don't necessarily, I mean, of course, they don't, not that they don't care, but they want to know right here and now, how can I connect to you? Oh, is it pickleball? Is it grandkids? Is it travel? And so she said that people, so don't, you know, stress too much about, I want to make sure I'm going to carry my CV around and hand it off to people. This is what I used to do. This is who I am. Rather, this is what I do now. And that's where the connection happens. So I really think that was, it was so nice and um it was a relief to hear her say that to remind yeah. everybody, you know, let's not get too worried about if I'm not doing this, then I'm nothing. It's not yeah, that. So I'm glad that you yeah. also endorse that that idea yes. as well, Sue. I completely agree. Completely agree. And as you said, all that it reminded me of something that I think is really important in my identity in this role, which is that I'm a family doctor and family doctors have longitudinal relationships and help people through good times and bad times. And, um, you know, I, I've said many times I, I've worked with students and residents and that was all wonderful. But I found my homework with faculty because with trainees, the minute they walk in the door, 
you're preparing them to leave you. Whereas with faculty, when they show up, you're hoping to retain them for a good portion, if not their entire career. It's unusual entire career, but a good portion of it. And if you keep them their entire career, you're also investing in helping them re-energize their career over and over again. So I love that parallel between my clinical training and which I, and I still practice uh, family medicine and this part of now this really important part of my professional life. That's not, you just said something that kind of did a little mind blowing for me. I never thought of it that way. I never thought about the interactions or the experiences, the relationships with trainees as being um, preparing or like I met again yeah, for kids. You're preparing for them to fly the nest and you're proud and you're watching them soar and you go, oh, that's one of mine. Rather, as opposed to new faculty, um, early career faculty. Who he, I guess at some point they do leave the nest. You go, oh, she trained here. You know, he was my, my, you know, uh, student. He was, uh, I brought him up through the ranks and I helped him get promoted. But it is, it is more of a long-term commitment. That is really, I have to think more about that. I like that reminder that the, the attention shifts to, listen, you got to get this done because you're out of here in a, in a little bit. You got to make it out there versus, Hey, welcome to the family. And what can we do to support you and help you grow and and make sure you feel be like a sense of belonging and we're investing in you? It's a it's a shift. So thank you for reminding me of that, Sue. Sure, sure. So tell us a little bit more about um what what is happening at UVA. Let's give some people some ideas at, at their institution because you and I know that people um we're starting to realize those of I'm a gerontologist. Some of our colleagues were so focused on early career, maybe starting to get focused on helping our mid-career faculty who are at that kind of existential angst of like, is this all there is? Is this what I do? So we're starting to kind of put programming for them. But later career has really been neglected, as, as you and I know. But some of our, our colleagues listening to this um, are don't, have not thought about baby boomers aging and how the, the world is aging. And that means our faculty are aging and there is work in this space and there's scholarship around here. And so, and then faculty, as kind of mentioned earlier, faculty who are listening to this thinking, well, I don't, I can tune out on this. No, you know, God willing and the, the crick don't rise, you're going to be later career. And so you, you know, we want to make sure that your, your institutions and schools have programs and policies and resources in place for your development. So Tell us a little bit more about what you what you've done at UVA, and then maybe on the national side, what you're doing and thinking about, so we can get people ex more excited about what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Kim, I would say we are not the leaders in that particular area. We have done what you've talked about. We focused on early career. We've got some middle career programs. We've got a new health leadership institute that's about um, appreciating the fact that we are now a health system with uh, support for our citizens across the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. But we look to people like you who can really help us uh, lay that groundwork. I mean, I think the things we've looked into and explored are the potential for an emeritus academy. And I'm really fascinated by the University of California system, which has a really active emeritus or retiree group um, involved. Uh, uh, you know, so we're, we're looking at those models, but haven't had the successes uh, there yet, but we are, we're growing our team in my office and that helps, allows us to do that. We are actively engaged with people around that 
the phase retirement piece and the, the piece around who are you now and what what ways can people be involved after retirement? Because many of our folks do retire and then re-engage in various ways, either as clinicians or writing grants or doing some teaching. And so we certainly are very supportive of the opportunities for people to stay engaged in the ways they wish to um, and contribute, but a bit in a way that respects their schedule and their priorities. It's not like we, people no longer are, are 1.0 FTE and, we, and they've got a job description. They now have the choice of how much time they want to spend and what mission area they want to contribute to. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's so, it's, fun for me to watch our later career, my colleagues kind of making that transition and not quite ready to jump from what they're doing. They want to let go necessarily fully until there's something to grab onto. And then once there's something to grab onto, it's easy to kind of make the jump. And so I like the options. And that's part of what we do with our panel presentations is faculty can kind of tune in and hear all the varieties and all the multifaceted layers of how people make this work for them. And we also, like California, have the academy. We call it the academy. And mm-hmm. if you go to Hopkins, the academy, it's not only a beautiful physical space in our East Reading Room of the Welch Library that we share with the School of Medicine, not only School of Medicine, Nursing and Public Health, but it's a beautifully designed, something like on HGTV. So it's a great place. But fact, there are like 10 or 12 different um, working groups, if you will, committees that do everything from STEM lab, teaching, coaching, helping writing grants, papers. So still having a foot in the door of being able to contribute intellectually and and guiding the next generation and also uh, socializing and traveling and bringing in speakers from different industries. So we've got over 200 members in our academy, the academy, and they love it. So that is so important to maintain that foothold in academia and meeting other people. So it's really an inspiring, beautiful place and great experience to have those. So yeah, we definitely endorse that. And and I've worked now, I just was on a call yesterday with our friend Newton Vedia and her colleagues at Rosalind Franklin and given a talk at Texas. And a lot of institutions are kind of reaching out. And we had a double AMC put on a great um, webinar a couple of months ago about late career transition. So there is movement here. There's excitement. I was asked to do another iteration of the late career faculty, the, the study that we did nationally to assess late career faculty's expectations around retirement. So this is is becoming, you know, more and more important because we also know in the literature that there we're gonna have um we're gonna have a deficit. There are gonna be fewer physicians. So institutions not only are struggling with you know financial economic models, but um we don't not gonna have we're gonna have a that's not about the deficit. What's the word I'm trying to think of? We're gonna have a projected shortfalls. All right, that's right. Shortfalls right. of physicians so here's this tension of do we want we want to keep faculty in the institutions while being aware of other pressing needs and interests? And one of those other things, a spinoff of my studies was caregiving in later career. That 36% of our faculty in the Department of Medicine, after I did the national study of caregiving, I, we brought it home national, locally, 36% of our faculty in the Department of Medicine are providing care for moms, dads in-laws or spouses so it's the life cycle of caregiving so i think as institutions and schools we have to be aware of if you want to retain faculty we have to have 
resources in place to uh, acknowledge that there are other competing interests, not only with caregiving responsibilities, but the desire to travel and engage with my community and volunteer and be involved in my synagogue and my church and my grandkids. So there's a lot going on there and it's just going to get, I think, even more, um, I mean, more topical. So I just, I'm super excited about how we can grow this space and serve not only faculty here, but our schools and our institutions. Yeah. And I love this, this, the concepts of having people do the work they're passionate about at the time when the competing demands of their personal life don't allow them to do that full time. Because that applies to people late career, but it applies to people early career, you know, there. And and it's if we can create models of flexibility um, around that. And, you know, there's the the, the book Mass Career Customization that was written about a decade or more ago and uh, Mag- Magali Fasciotto at Stanford did some work around that. It's about, you know, how do you let people ratchet their career up and down? Because we're in this, this most recent part of the talk, we're talking about late career. But that really, that model, if we can uh, find ways to apply it throughout people's career, I think we reduce burnout, increase engagement, um, and we certainly strengthen the psychological contract between the institution and, and the the faculty member when they know this place values my talents and allows me to have the flexibility at times in my life when that's critical, knowing that first and foremost, my full professional identity is associated with this institution. And this is where I will give that effort to the extent that I have the opportunity to give more or less at different times. I love it. What is the name of that book again? I'm just trying to Google it to find it. Mass called Mass Career Customization. It was written by two women at Deloitte. um, And it talks about the the concept of allowing people to increase their engagement, how much they travel, how much leadership they have, much time they put in, you know, at different points in their life. And it's really a a great, great book. and if we were flexible enough to do that, I think it would be would help faculty. And, and, you know, you can't turn on a dime. These are the kind of things you talk about at an annual review and think we'll work on this in the next six, nine, 12 months. Um, but they are, you know, if we have a system that looks at that. And I think for me personally, you know, in terms of patient access, so many of our institutions are modeled around two four-hour sessions, eight to noon and one to five. Well, how many patients does that actually work for? It doesn't work for me as a patient. If we set up systems that had our, our outpatient facilities open seven to seven and then allowed our providers to work blocks of that time, um, that would that seems like an incredible win-win. But of course, it's hard to, you know, takes matrixed um, scheduling, and we know we have a, a deficit in terms of the number of folks who are there as support members of the clinical team are, you know, really important RNs and, and LPNs and medical assistants. But I think ideally that would be a way, that would be a win for everyone. And, and including, most importantly, our patients who need that access at times other than work standard working hours genius i mean you're so right that is so smart sue i love the way you're thinking and it just it ties back to how your idea of the part-time being flexible and if anything didn't we learn about flexibility during the pandemic telehealth is now happening yeah how many people like the flexibility of being able to go and why why do we have to do surgery at Oh, dark 30 in the morning. Why can't we have surgeries at seven o'clock at night? Why why can't we be a little bit more nimble? So you are so smart. Here's this book, folks. I want to make sure 
You heard that mass career customization, Kathleen Benko and Anne Weisberg. I'm going to get that book soon. Thank you so much. I love the way you think. Wow. Good stuff. It makes so much sense. Yeah, and I, And again, yeah, I just can't help but how we pivoted so quickly here at Hopkins. We learned, I think, and we've heard nationally, oh, we can't do telehealth, can't do telehealth, can't do telehealth. Well, boy, didn't we do telehealth in a minute when we had to do telehealth? Yeah. So that's an example of how well people say, oh, well, that blocks scheduling. That would never work. That would never work. That would never work, never work. Until one day someone's going to do it and we'll go, well, well, it can work if you do it that way. So if there's a will, there's a way, right? Right. Right. You're so smart. Well, mm-hmm. I, I I love talking with you. This I've learned so much already. I'm trying to keep these podcast episodes shorter because I know people don't have time to listen to them, but I always want to talk forever. And my my producer, Casey Callanan, always says, Kim, try to keep it shorter. Keep try to keep it shorter. And so I'm trying to keep it shorter here. Um this has been great. No, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you and enjoyed the free-flowing ideas and really enjoyed all your contributions to the work that all of us do and the work that I do. I got some good ideas too. I've written some things down. So I've got some marching orders that I'm creating for myself based on this. Oh, you're so kind. So kind. See, folks, see, this is this is why we have award winners like Sue Paula. This is this is it. This is a real deal. And yes, you want to seek her out whenever you see her here hear from her. Let me give you her email address while you're listening to me here. Please do. Um, yeah. It is sps2s at uvahealth.org. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. My internet connection is all of a sudden unstable. So I guess we're it. We're ending it. Uh, we're done. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. So good to be part of this again. I really appreciate it. You're the best, everybody. Hey, you know, check out Sue Pollard, everybody. And if you want to be in the podcast, just shoot me an email or go to facultyfactory.org. Thanks again, Sue. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.